Thank you. Uh, I have to say, I, I love being responsible for the nerds. Uh, I just love, love sitting, in the, um, sitting in the back and listening to everybody learn. Uh, so we're going for, uh, for peak efficiency tonight. We're actually going to finish on time tomorrow. So there's a narrow, um, there's a, there's a, a narrow set of things I want to accomplish. This is the first of four. So I want to uh, define some key terms. And then I want to complicate those definitions show the possibility that those definitions change over time. And then the one piece that I think is original, which we can decide if whether it's rather than authority or not, is I want to roll back one of the changes. Okay, that's our agenda for the next 40 minutes. Okay, so we'll um, start with uh, Bryce Elder's intellectual warm-up exercise. So a, um, 10 people strike somebody with God and he dies. Everybody agrees that if they strike him consecutively, that there's no liability. Okay, now the two possible, at least two possible scenarios you can imagine. Uh, one scenario is that ten people each strike him with a force necessary, with one tenth of the force necessary to kill him. And, right, and they, collectively they add up to enough force to kill him. The other is that each of them strike him with force that is independently sufficient to kill him. Okay, so we're going to bracket the first case where ten people each right, striking with one-tenth force, because we're going to say that there, it's obvious we understand why no one is liable, because nobody actually struck a killing blow, or we can say, technically, that uh, nobody could have struck him with intent to kill, because they, right, because they, they used minimal force. But if ten people strike somebody simultaneously, each with a killing blow, so why is it that nobody is liable? So one possibility is the lack of knowledge, right? Ten people strike somebody simultaneously. We don't know who killed it. Okay? Or, yeah? How can you hold ten people liable for killing one man? Or actually, we do know that all, right? We know that all ten struck simultaneously, so either they're all liable or not. It's not a lack of knowledge. It's just that you can't hold more than one person liable for the same result. This is actually a problem in analytic philosophy also, but whether it's possible for a single effect to have multiple causes. Right, whether the cause of the, the right, every right, every cause has, every effect has to have a single cause. Okay, that's pretty straightforward, and that tells us absolutely nothing about death. It only tells us about murder. But then we get into the next case. The next case is ten people strike him consecutively. So ten people strike him consecutively. Now there again we have the question: Is it that ten people strike him each at a ten percent blow, or ten people strike him? At, um, with, uh, with the force, each of them with enough force necessary to kill him, it just takes time. So if it, each of them strikes him with 10% force, so then it's pretty clear the last person should be liable. So we're going to bracket that case, because really not, well, each of the others struck a blow that was not sufficient to kill, and then he struck a blow sufficient to kill. Right? In the same way, it doesn't make sense if, um, let's say, you know, if somebody scratches, yeah, I don't know, it's not terribly morbid. Somebody, there's an anyway, not, there's not more really, right? So there's more really possible, right? Somebody scratches your neck and then somebody else takes the sword, right? We'd all be liable for murder because you have scratched them first. Right? Obviously, it's the sword. Yes. You're making a function that if you have to do 10%, what if you short to 20%, what if the fifth person might kill them? Wait, that's fine. Well, you're right. We could come with an intermediate. Then the, the last, and it, we, could, we, could te we could make the case different for the first five people and the last five people. Right, so we're going to assume since we ask with ten, since it gives ten people, I'm going to assume all ten people have to be in roughly the same boat. Right, right that's a fair question. Okay, so in this case, however, we have a dispute. Right, if, you, if the ten people strike him consecutively, there's a dispute. 
where the um, the anonymous opening position says they are exempt, but Rabbi Yehuda ben Bekeira says that the last person is liable. With an interesting phrase, he says Shekireh et Nisato, because he brought the death closer. Okay, what's the basis for this, for this dispute? Why, why does Rabbi Yehuda ben say that you're liable and they say you're exempt? So the Talmud first of all quotes Rabbi Yochanan who makes it a cool, um, a cool biblical interpretation debate. It says anybody who is maket kol nefesh, so does a maket kol nefesh mean all of an nefesh, or anything which is a nefesh? Right? Any, right? any little bit of nefesh or all nefesh? Okay, good. If it's about verses, then it has absolutely nothing interesting to say to us. If it's really about verses, we're just going to forget about that for now. It's just cool. Um, the, the interesting question is that Talmud goes on to say, aha, you know what? Rava comes along and says we need to we need to um, we need to analogize and narrow this dispute. Rabbi comes along and he says, you know what? Both the Chachamim and Rabbi Yehuda would agree that if you kill somebody who is a trefa, that you're not liable. How does this relate to the previous case? So presumably it means that um, when the tenth, in the case of in the case of consecutive consecutive blows, by the time the tenth person hits him. He is already a traitor. Right, in principle, right, uh, oh, sorry. The time he might be a traitor. Let's, let's, let's say it that way. We're going to learn out that he's not. So why is it, so if you kill a traitor, exactly. so, so if you kill a traitor, everybody agrees that you're not liable. So what's a traitor? Rashi says a traitor is somebody who has their trachea and esophagus cut away. Well, they're not dead. So they take a while to bleed out. Or as I have oxygen deprivation all the way, this is early morbid share. Uh, they turn into a zombie, whatever. Uh, whatever, whatever it may be, right? So uh, everybody agrees that if you kill that if you kill a traitor, then you're not you're not um, you're not liable. And Rashi says the reason for that is that you're considered to be already dead. Tosos say that this applies even according to somebody who believes that a trefer can live more than 12 months. Now that seems to expand it. If it's a trefer lot, so not too many people can live for 12 months with both their trachea and esophagus severed. Okay, so, right, so obviously we are excited. And it's really quite astounding to say that somebody who can live with 12 months is already dead. Uh, I think there was a movie some years ago called DOA right, where somebody had been poisoned they had 24 hours to find the other person before they die. Now, imagine that whole that film, right, where you get a year, right? As opposed to killing with a year, but, right, if somebody's tried to kill you, right? And that's a little, it doesn't have quite the same dramatic suspense. To say that somebody's already dead because they're going to die of something in a year is a quite dramatic thing. And if we look at Tosut, we'll see that Tosut may not offer the same logic as Rashi. Rashi, who gives a dramatic case of somebody who actually has, a, you know, somebody who actually has a trachea and esophagus cut, says, why are you exempt? Because he's already dead. Tosto says, why are you exempt? Because in the end, he will die of this wound. So I want to argue, there's a fundamental difference in understanding the case. One possibility is, what we're debating, right, when we say that you're exempt for killing a trefa, one possibility is you're exempt for killing a trefa. Why? As Rashi says, because a trefa is dead. Okay, don't be fooled, right? The rumors of his lack of demise are greatly exaggerated. Right? Because really, right, really he's dead, even though, right, even though he spent, it takes 12 months. Tosa says, it's not because, yes, yeah, sorry. So, I mean, 
by this logic, then anybody with a terminal illness can be killed by anyone without uh, consequence? Without biblical consequence. If we think that's what a trefa is. But we don't, right? All we know is we have an extreme definition of a trefa, which is somebody who has a, right, who has a trefa in esophagus cut. And then we have a hint in toast that it must have a broader definition, but we haven't been given that definition yet. And you're saying anybody will see that that's going to be very problematic. Right? With that, that notion, because it's not true. Not everybody who's dying is a trefa. Right? Some of them are ghost esophagus, we'll see in a moment. Right? And perhaps some of them are zombies. Uh, yes. Yes. Ah, good question. If you make someone a trefa, all right, right, is that murder? Probably not. Also, probably if you right, that's one of the cases you can murder people by degrees. So we'll have to figure out because right? if you cut somebody's trachea and esophagus, presumably that is murder, right? So that's right. That's a. So let's play. Let's play this out. I want, to, I want to say there are really two ways of understanding it, and those are going to play out through the whole conversation. One way of understanding it is, the reason you're exempt for killing a trefa is that you've already did. That's what Rashi says. He's a gabra kisila. The other possibility is you're exempt for killing a trefa because he's already been killed. Which is not the same thing. Because you can write, because that's just the same case as the case of ten people striking somebody consecutively. So according to the position of the Chachamim that the tenth person is exempt, why is he exempt? Because people one through nine already struck killing blows, and you can't kill him over and over again. He's not dead yet, but he's already been killed. Because it's possible to commit the act of murder. And now we're just waiting, right? There's a condition. In order to, in order to be held liable for murder, you have to kill somebody and they have to die. But the, right, but the action actually takes place at the moment that you kill them. So if somebody has already struck a killing blow, you can't be right. You can't be liable for killing them, and that's the dispute between Rabbi Yudah and the Rabbi Yudah said you can be if you made him die faster. And in fact, if you make him die faster, you remove the liability from the others, right, even though they'd already killed him, because it turns out that he died. That right. That. He died before the, the condition of their murder was fulfilled. Okay, so these are two really, really, really broad, um, really broad um, conceptions, I think, and I think that's the dispute between Rabbi Chachamim. Rabbi Chachamim say that he's exempt because he's already, uh, or two ways of understanding. One way is that the grounds for exemption is that he's already dead, and one way that one way is the ground of exemption is that he's already been killed. Okay, so, so Rabbi says everybody agrees about a trefa. Now the question, and everybody also agrees, that if you have this thing called a ghost ace at the hands of heaven, you kill a ghost ace who, who became a ghost ace naturally, that, that is murder. Okay, the problem is what is a ghost ace? But there's something in the same universe as a trefa. Right? A trefa, if you kill them, nobody thinks you're liable. You're, li- you're liable for execution, either because they're already dead or because you already killed them. But there's a ghostface, a ghostface at the hands of heaven, that everyone agrees if you kill them, that is murder. Now, why is that? Um, sorry, so, um, presumably, so he's not dead. Right? He's not dead, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? Why should a ghostface be given to anybody else? You're in the weird Okay, it turns out that the, the Naskimina of their dispute, according to Rava, is uh, a ghost state at human hands. 
They have a category of somebody who was made a Jose because of things other people did to him. So what does that mean? So the um, so one person compares the ghost of the human hands to um, says that person's like a traceless you're exempt. And one person says if you kill someone who was made a ghost by human hands, then it's just like a ghost of the hands of heaven, you're liable. So what's the difference between what's the difference between them? They say that the operative thing is that a ghost at the hands of heaven has not been the object of an action, and this has been the object of an action. So what's the key parameter? The key parameter is has he already been killed? A ghost at the hand, right, a ghost at the hand at the hands of heaven has not had anyone else kill them. They could be a lot closer to death than a person. But it doesn't matter, they're not dead. And as long as you're not dead, if somebody kills you, they're alive. The other person says, no. The issue is that a trefa has a trefa um Sorry, the issue, is, the issue is whether an action um, has been done. Sorry, that's the first person's action. The second one says, the issue is whether, whether the simanina has been cut. There's something technical about being a tracer. Being a tracer makes you dead. Being a ghostly, even though you're dying, you're not dead. Being a tracer makes you dead. Okay, so our two underlying positions are, one position is that you're always liable for murder if the person is alive and no one else has killed them. The other person, the other thing says, no, there are people who are alive, but not really. Traitors are alive, but not really. What's the difference? Well, what's the difference between a ghost and a traitor? So all the Talmud says is that a traitor actually has his money in the cut, and a ghost does not. A trefa has a particular set of physical conditions, and a ghost says not. So it's not about the inevitability of their death. It's not about the nearness of their death. Because again, when you kill a ghost, if you're liable, you kill a trefa, you're not. Even though a trefa can live for a year. But there is a physical condition called being a trefa that makes you already dead. Okay, that's the underlying that's the underlying definition that matters to us. It's right to understand what happens in defining our terms is that a tracer is somebody who has a physical a particular kind of physical condition that will kill them. A ghost is somebody who is dying but doesn't have that physical condition. And the and the legal thing that works out is that a tracer is dead and a ghost is not. Assuming that our criteria is right, you're already dead as opposed to as, as opposed to we're interested in whether you've already been killed. We'll see what that matters to you. Okay, what does Maimonides do? Maimonides says that um, right, if you kill a healthy person or a sick person tending towards death, even if you kill the ghost, he's executed, right? No matter how, right? So you have healthy, you have a sick person tending towards death, you have ghost who's more than tending towards death. It's still murder. However, if you kill, if you kill, if you, if you, if you the ghost is a result of human action, so then you don't kill him. Why? Because he's already been killed. And not that he's not alive, but he's ready to go to two people are in the exact same medical condition. Hold ghost. One of them is that way because God put them that way. One of them is there because human beings put them that way. If you kill the person whom God put that way, you're liable because you're the one who killed him. If you if you do it to the person whom another person puts that way, you're not liable because the other person killed him, not you. Okay? 
So that's why you're not liable for death at the hands of at the hands at the hands of human beings. If you kill a trefa, now the Rambam adds some sequences to the description of the trefa. The trefa is walking around and eating in the marketplace, living a perfectly ordinary life, indistinguishable on the outside from any other human being. Right? In fact, the trefa looks exactly like me. Okay, because or um, right because I have at some point had a puncture in my lung casing. That is one of the cases that makes someone a trefa. Um, so you look exactly like me, not murdered. Hopefully this is not tempting anything. Uh, okay, so, we're, so we have, right, a trace like now, we have somebody who can be walking and talking in the marketplace, live for 12 months, and nonetheless it's not murder to kill them. But you have somebody on their deathbed, die, right, dying of some terrible illness, and that is murder. That's the paradox that's going to shape all of Jewish life, end of life ethics is that it's not the imminence of death that drives right, that drives it. And there, there are people whose death is imminent who nonetheless is murder to kill. And there are people whose death is not imminent who is not murder to kill. Although it's still wrong. Yes? Is Trefa always um, something that's caused by somebody else? No. So then how does that drive it to be that um, Good. So the end is going to be is that we're going to say that a trefa, everybody agrees, because whether it's because somebody, right, because a trefa is unquestionably dead in some sense. But then the ghost takes the day of done, right, that, right, that, 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 that becomes a dispute as to, right, as to whether, what happens if they're alive but somebody else killed them first. Okay? Yeah, but why would a, if, if a ghost takes the day of done, is it okay to kill because, um, yeah. They've already been killed by somebody else. So if somebody else made you a trefa, right. so, yeah, so your interesting question is what, right, so it would seem to be that a trefa, okay, so what you want to say is a ghost of the Adam is a machloket. Why isn't the trefa a machloket? Right, that's the question you want to ask? Right, so the answer is everybody agrees a trefa is dead, but it might be there are two reasons behind trefa, or it might, right, might, might be only one. Okay, excellent question. Okay, so the first thing I want to introduce, which is somewhat original today, is that usually discussions of halakhic end-of-life conversation are only about trefa, goseth, and bidei adam versus bidei shemayim. And I actually think there are three categories. There's the trefa, the goseth, and the zombie. And you ask, where does the zombie come in halakha? So the answer is there's a shilta of the which we're going to read together, which says something quite astonishing. It says, but there's a person who fell, and his neck broken too, with most of the flesh cut apart along with it, Okay, so right, somebody falls from a 30-star window, grabs a bit, and they have a broken neck. So, okay, what are they? Could be their traces, could be their ghost face. No, what we say about them is, even though his neshama has not yet departed, he is dead. So it's a body. The body, and the, but the, bo- the body can move in a certain sense, whatever it may be, right? It, it, you know, it can breathe, has a heartbeat. But it's dead, and here's the important thing, it's deader than a trefa. Because a trefa uh, is dead in the sense that you can't murder him, but you don't have to mourn for a trefa. You're not allowed to bury a trefa. Right? A coin can walk into a room with a trefa. Right? There are two, right, at least three, there are three coins in the room at least that I'm, aware of, that, I'm, right, that I'm aware of. They're all allowed to be here, even if I really am a trefa. Uh, right, so a trefa is only dead for the purposes of murder. 
But a zombie is really, really dead. Right? A zombie is not only dead for the purpose of murder, a zombie is dead to the point that a coin can't walk into a room with a zombie. And lots of time, maybe it's okay to bury a zombie. Now we have an interesting definition of a zombie. A zombie is a body which, right, which has a soul in it, but the soul is not possessing the body. The soul is imprisoned in the body. So that's a very reasonable understanding of the Talmud, right? But it's not. I think the Shulchan says he is dead. Right, the language he quotes that he says the are forbidden to become tame, not kabbalim are forbidden to be in the room because they might become tame. He says, Kodim are forbidden to become Tamil. So I think he really thinks that he's dead. But he doesn't deny that there's still an Ashama Wudu. Okay, so that's our first move, which is going to animate um, what we do throughout the series, is the, um, is the claim that really there are three categories, and that third category, the zombie, has been insufficiently appreciated in the uh, previous office discourse, and many things will change. That's not walking around. It's just that this is the dice when it's a few moments before he dies. He broke his neck. That's what we, we have one case of it. But the question is, how is he yeah. going to be dead in the next couple of minutes? I have no idea. <laughs> so there were people who've broken their necks and they can't move to the neck down, and they, yeah, other uh, people consider them dead. So we have to figure out exactly what the case is. He says, you know, to, the neck has to be broken and much of the flesh severed. So we have a right. So we right. So we have right. So we have a fairly clear definition. Um, but those are, that's, you know, the interesting thing to me is there's a physical definition, and then there's a metaphysical definition. Right? So this is, the physical definition is a case of a metaphysical phenomenon. The metaphysical phenomenon is a soul trapped in the body. Right? This is an example of the physical phenomenon. The question is, are there, right, are there other examples, other physical phenomena, that would also instantiate this metaphysical phenomenon? Right, that's right, that's... But if you think of it as just, oh, that one case, okay, that's not a big deal. But if you think, right, but if you, but if you can think of a, of a whole set of cases, right, and this is just an example, then the category becomes really important. Okay, that's move number one. And what are, right, so I, I, have, I have gone out of my way so far not to give any definition to zombie. We give definition to Trefa, but not to zombie. But, uh, sorry, to go to, to Trefa, but not to go to. What I want to do is offer you Ramosha Feinstein's definition of um, definition of ghostface in um, several in several levels, um, and then um, and then I want to move on to whether his definition is the only possible definition. His definition has enormous impact on the way in which end of life ethics is constructed nowadays. Any other? The first thing he tells you is you have to understand there's a difference between trace food in, in animals. And trace food in human beings. So the Mishnah in Chulin, in Chulin has there's a chapter called Elu Trefut. And what is that chapter? It's a list of holes in organs which make an animal a trefa. And if you make an animal a trefa, then it is trace. And that's where the word trace comes from. And it's an animal that has a puncture or a hole in a particular right in a in a particular set of organs. Now there's a whole history behind this, which is the problem is that so presumably, there's a debate about whether trefos can ever live or not, whether, can, right, whether all trefos die within 12 months of the Talmud, or whether 
uh, when there's most trace of diamond 12 months. The problem that people notice immediately after the Talmud is lots of these animals didn't die at all. And so all of the laws of Trefot kind of made, stopped making sense as a physical phenomenon because there were too, too many animals that had these kinds of punctures and didn't die. And the famous case we have most recently of this is, conceivably, um, is the fact that we actually, a hole in the uh, in a cow's stomach, it makes it a Trefot, and it turns out that we overfeed our dairy cows such that they get enormous gas problems, and guess how you solve the problem of gas and dairy cows? puncture their stomach, if you put a hole in them. Now, all the way the problem is that all our dairy, all our dairy cows are traitors. Now, we don't put puncture them because we want them to die. We puncture them because we want them to live, because if we don't puncture them, then they go, right, so we puncture dairy cows so that right, so they won't die. But the problem is, right, we have this real issue that we are now putting holes in animal stomachs in order to help them live. Whereas the halakhi category seems to think that putting holes in animals makes them die. So we have all sorts of, we have, we have for a thousand years tried our various ways out of this. In this particular way, the most inventive way is to claim that it's only, uh, it's only, it's only uh, perpendicular holes that make animals special, but diagonal holes don't. Right. <laughs> I kid you not, that's, that's our most prevalent way out of the, uh, out of, you know, to, to keep all our milk pressure. Um, Does that affect what about, what about the meat? Same way, not a trefer. Because for them, the things that would have been trefer, you know, 200 years ago are now kosher. Uh, so that's, so the answer is no, right? In order to get it, we have to claim, no, nobody ever thought animals with diagonal punctures were trefer. It was always a perpendicular uh, puncture. But, okay, right, so we have problems with this. And basically, we all know that, basically, trefer became a, um, we don't, we, we, we don't in practice expect animals that are trefo to die. They just have trefo, but we still check them. For, you know, that's what we call black kosher. Right? Black kosher means you blow up the lung of the animal and inspect it for punctures. Right? A, a, a glot animal, right? a, a, when, um, in a glot animal, if you see any kind of lesions on the lungs, you assume they're, they're a healed puncture. And so, and so the, and if you treat the animal as not kosher and non glot meat, you will actually you'll rub it you'll rub it and see if it's actually just a blood clot, not scar tissue, and assume it doesn't have a puncture. But the whole purpose of it, right? Of it, right but after you shaft a large animal, you blow up the lungs and you inspect it to see if it if its lungs have puncture. Okay. So much it says that's only about animals. So now we use the same term tracer for animals and human beings, but much it doesn't mean the same thing. But by tra by animals. The category trace of it says since, as you all point out, the things that kill people, that kill animals will change every generation. But he asserts that the category of trace food for eating has to be metahistorical. And therefore, trace are fixed at whatever were, uh, whatever were believed or, or actually did kill animals in the time of Kabbalah. And changes in technology which enable animals to live, for, to live indefinitely with these functions don't affect a lot at all. But he suggests, when it comes to human beings, a human being, I'm not really afraid of. Even though if I were an animal, I would be. Right? I'm not kosher. But, as for any assassins out there who, have, who, are, who think they can get away with it, you can't. Because as a human being tracer, the only thing that makes a human being tracer is if you actually have a physical hole in a vital 
an organ that will kill you within a year. Right? So the so the definition of trace of a human being carries the same conceptual definition as it does by animals, but it's a very but it's practically entirely different. Right? A human, right, trace of a human being is defined as a person who has a puncture in a vital organ that will kill them within a year. Hey, what about a ghost state? So as Moshe adds in a whole set of that other... Uh, that meet our threshold of probability of death. Right? What that threshold of probability is is, is, is broader than I want to do right now. It, uh, uh, meet our threshold. Probable, it's super probable, highly probable, you know, close to inevitable, whichever one you want. But it has to be a puncture. Right? It can't just be... Right, or certain organs it can be a hypertrophy or an, or an atrophy, but it can't just be that you know that you have an infection, right? Or it can't, um, right? It probably can't be cancer in the, in the overwhelming majority of cases. Doesn't have that kind of physical state. What's a ghost state? So if you look at, um, right, the Rosh introduces a theological definition of a ghost state at the end of Source Four. He says the law of a ghost state, uh, who is a person with no lack in his organs, and from that perspective could live forever. Thus, the human beings have to die because we ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge. So, ghostness is somebody who is dying, but they're dying not because of any specific lack in their body. They're dying because people die. And you know what? People don't die suddenly, they die gradually. So, ghostness is somebody whom you can look at and you say, you know what? The poison, the poison of the tree of knowledge is coming home to us. Okay, the Russia goes further. Right? He says, you look at the fourth five, he says, the difference between a dangerously, what's the difference between a terminally ill person and a ghost state? He says, you, in your question, he says, you talked about a ghost state, but I didn't use the word ghost state because I use the word ghost state in a very precise meaning. A ghost state means somebody who, A, you can't touch them. B, it's not possible to treat them for this or any other illnesses. Right? So the two criteria for ghost states, A, is that you can't touch them. Why? Because if you touch them, you'll kill them. They're that fragile. And B, right, there's no possibility of treatment. Yes? Is that a consequence or a requirement of defining that? That's a fair question. That one's a, yeah. It's a fair question. We don't know. All we know is that it's part of our identi identification marking of those states is somebody whom touch is a risk of, right, just touching is a risk of death. And then another picture. He says, Gesisa, he says, is recognizable to those who understand and spend time with the person. But if you don't, you have to know it. I can't describe it to you. People usually talk nowadays about a death rattle or something like that, but it's words. You don't have it. He says, also, by the way, ghost states can't live more than three days. And then he says, right, so the halakha actually is that if, if a person comes over to you and says, I saw your relative three days ago and he was a ghost state, you start mourning. So there's a presumption that he's going to die. But let's watch well, how we... That he's dead when you the news. Yeah, that he's, dead, he's already dead when you heard the news. So we've had the paradox very starkly, right, that a trefa can live for 12 months and be walking around, and it's not murder to kill him. A ghost is inevitably dead within three days, and it is murder to kill him. Right, that's, the, that's the paradox at the heart. Now, Ramosha goes on to say in source number six, he says, regarding the prohibition against touching a ghost state, 
says, regarding the signs of Gesisa, I have heard that doctors do not recognize these. Perhaps because with regard to treatment, there is no difference, because the nations of the world are not concerned that touching and dealing uh, will lead to loss of, of nefesh, and they don't think this is forbidden for two reasons. One, they don't know that it's forbidden to touch a ghost and the one who touches a ghost is considered to be a murderer. And two, even if they agree that it's killing, they just don't care so much. Yeah, they're going to touch tradition of this suicide law anyway. Uh, I read the euthanasia laws, so, right, so what's the big, so what's the, uh, what's the big deal? Okay, so now so we end up with, we have a definition of trefa. Trefa is somebody who has a particular kind of wound or puncture that will, according to current medical opinion, kill them within 12 months, even though from, right, even though from all external perspectives they appear perfectly healthy. A gosef is somebody who is so, right, who is so obviously dying uh, that A, the symptoms are recognizable, and B, it's 100% that they're going to die within three days, and C, even touching them is a risk of death. So that's the way that um, Rav Moshe sets it up, and that's a very conventional current definition of gosef, and all sorts of um, interesting implications. Uh, one of them is that it's almost impossible to test whether somebody is dead by any kinds of contact means. Because the, the test might kill them. Another is the circumstances where it should be impossible for relatives to hold their dying relative's hands. Right, so there's a whole set of challenging consequences to this. And uh, the other thing is, all of you immediately you know, sort of said, head, what? Is that really true? Are there people whom mere touch can cause to die? That, there are, that, a, that the signs of a ghost face are identifiable, that I think will be confirmed probably by the medical professionals in the room. Um, you know, that, doctor, that if you deal with dying patients, you can get there. Um, also, apparently, there are expert cats. Uh, there was a very big AOL story a number of years ago about a cat that uh, in a nursing home that you knew which patient was dying next because the cat Oscar, I think his name was, would when the patient was dying, it would, that, that's the bed he would go on to that night. Um, right, so apparently this was a cat that was good at, at determining good at carrying the dog playing probably. <laughs> <laughs> no, no one decided to do it But it's a very challenging notion that, that touch can lead to death. So the last thing I want to do tonight, now we have definitions. Right? Again, to be clear, we have we have the ghost face who is imminently dying in three days, but does not have a, but does not have that kind of specific wound. The trefa who has that wound which will kill him only within 12 months, and a zombie who is a um, a soul in right, whether the soul is imprisoned in the body. Um, but we have the side definition of the ghost face is that somebody who's in the position of the ghost face, you're not allowed to touch because you might kill them. So I want to argue in the last seven minutes that that position, although it is very broadly held in contemporary Alaska and has been for hundreds of years. Possibly, possibly reasonably well held for a thousand years, I want to argue that actually it's a mistake. And I'll try and show you why I think it's a mistake, and then you can um, decide for yourself whether that should have any impact on us or not. I think it should. So if you turn to page, to page six, the first I gave you just a list of the possible ways in which the category of death can be divided. But I'm interested in the first step. The first step says, that they perform all actions necessary for the dead on Shabbat. They anoint and rinse them so long as they move none of his limbs. 
They remove the cushions from underneath him and place him on the sand so that he won't uh, to avoid petrify or never generate him. They tie the cheeks to preserve what the faithful look like. Tangents, you can also do things on Shabbat like that. They don't close the eyes of the dead on Shabbat, nor during the week together with the departure of the Nephesh. And one who closes the eyes together with the departure of the Nephesh is considered a blessing. So what's the context of this Mishnah? The problem is that a dead body is and because they're dead on Shabbat they are Moksha. Right, so this is a Mishnah which tries to figure out how you deal with the necessities of Shavod HaMate, of honoring the right of honoring the dead, as opposed to the prohibition of Moksha. And it tells you there's a whole set of things you can do, like you can you can anoint and rinse it, but you can't move it. Okay? And you also can't close the eyes. And by the way, during the week, you can't close the eyes. You're right. You can't close the eyes at the at the moment of death either. And if you close the eyes at the moment of death, even during the week, this is separate from Shabbat. Right? Then you're considered a blood service. Why? So this right is continued on Shabbat 151b, where says, now somebody who closes the eyes as the nefesh is leaving, they're considered a blood shedder. It's like a candle is the very same image, a candle that is going out. You put your finger on the candle and the candle goes out. Okay, so closing the eyes as the soul is departing is putting a finger on the candle. And what it is, is the equivalent of filling a term, wait, not a trace of it. The ghost face. Right? You have a person, right? The ghost a ghost face is a flickering candle. And a ghost face, right, you put you put your finger on the candle, the candle goes out. Okay, that's what the that's what the Talmud says. Okay. Now the the um, there's a Mishnah that shows that shows a brighter that shows up in various contexts. And we'll read it first in um, the, the far right column. The bright and available of a thief. And um, here's what it says. The ghost face is like one who is living for all purposes. I'm reading, reading down the right hand column. Right? The ghost is already to Kai He's like living for all purposes. Ain't kosher and lechayal. You cannot tie up his cheeks. Does that sound familiar? Right? When can you tie up his cheeks? When he's dead on Shabbat. Okay? And you can't anoint him. When can you anoint him? When he's dead on Shabbat. Okay, so what is this Raisa? This Raisa is the inverse of the uh, right of the of the Mishnah and Shabbat. Mishnah and Shabbat says that these are the things that you can do after he's dead, as long as you avoid Mukta. This Raisa is a list of the things that you can't do while he's alive. What can't you do while he's alive? All the things that you're going to do for him when he's dead. And the, and the import of the import of the brayta all the way through is don't treat someone who's still alive, who's, still, who's imminently dying as if they're dead. You don't dig their grave. You don't you don't engage in the physical preparations that treat them like a corpse. Okay, you have two brightas which have roughly the same roughly the same list, but one of them is in the context of things that you can do on Shabbat because he's already dead, and one of the list of things you can't do during the week because he's not yet dead. Those brightos converge on the question of, which I have labeled as H here, um, in, in the first column, right? They each end by telling you 
You can't close the eyes while he's dying. Okay, however, the Brisa, which says, which talks about Muksa on Shabbat, has an exception. There's one thing that even though you would do it ordinarily when you're taking care of the dead, you can't do on Shabbat. And what is it you can't do? You can't move him. Why can't you move him? Because he's Muksa. Okay, whereas, uh, whereas on a weekday, right, when you're, when you're preparing a dead body, you have to move him. Right, that's, right, so right, so the, the brightness converge on the, right, they each have the warning, don't close the eyes before he says, but they, right, but they have a difference in that on Shabbat, is that the Shabbat brightness tells you don't move him, and the brightness tells you that you, um, tells you, of course, that you have to do things that do involve moving him. And this is, by the way, if you go through all the three of that's consistent, that the, there are lots of things that you're supposed to do involving moving him during the week, but on Shabbat you only do the things that don't involve moving him because he's Muslim. Okay. So I gave you three versions of the Brisa, and you'll see how the, if you look at the columns, you can see how they line up. No, see, that's not true. That's exactly right. There is nothing whatsoever wrong with touching a Muslim object if you don't move it. Right, that, that, that's a, and that's exactly what causes it. Because we teach people that they're not allowed to touch most objects, but there's absolutely no prohibition in touching most objects. The prohibition, the prohibition is moving most objects or making use of most objects. Okay, but that's exactly what happens. What happens is, is that when you get to the Riddick and many other people, um, the two, the two brightos converge. And where do they converge? They converge in the metaphor of the candle. What happens is, the metaphor of the candle originally meant that you don't close someone's eyes as they're dying. Why? Because that, because the idea is that that is um, actually not, that is something that is symbolically or actually treated as actually hastening their death. Why? Because closing their eyes uh, it, it stops out the last spark of life, literally. Right? So that's why you're putting, you're putting your finger on the candle. Now we all understand whatever you think symbolically or metaphysically, whatever it is that closing the eyes means the person right, is the final stage of death. But it happens that in order that closing their eyes is also an example on Shabbat of moving part of the person's body. Which is why the Brahma Shabbat says you can't do it on Shabbat or during the week. You can't do it on Shabbat after he's already dead, because right, because it's Moksha, and you can't do it before he's dead because it's murder. But because on Shabbat it's also framed as touch and move. So a, a version of the metaphor um, develops, which you can find on the bottom of column three in the bit, where he says, right, as opposed to the metaphor being when you put your finger on the candle, what he says is, this is similar to to a flickering candle, when the person touches it, the candle goes down. So what happened over time was, that the flickering candle metaphor, which was supposed to be, uh, originally was, was a metaphor specifically related to the closing of the eyes. Right? It was a metaphor about putting out the last flicker of soul. Right? Be be became understood as being a metaphor about the fragility of life, so that even touching it makes it go out. That's not really true. Touching a candle doesn't make it go out. You have to put your finger on the flame. But because the language develops in such a way as just touching it, 
You, right? So now, now, from this point on, you can trace, throughout history, you can trace the people who quote the metaphor as putting their finger on the flame, and the people who quote the metaphor as touching the candle. And I'm arguing that the original version of the metaphor is putting out the flame, and the idea that you cannot touch a ghost arises from the, the mistransfer of the metaphor. And how does that play out logically? So it turns out that the Shulchan Aruch quotes, right, um, quotes the metaphor with the version and the halakha, the version that talks about moving the dead person, the, the dying person, not about touching them. If you look back at a Feinstein citation, you'll say, everyone knows you can't touch a dose. And what does he quote? The shock. The commentary of the Shulchan Aruch. Why? Because you can't quote because you can't quote the Shulchan Aruch. And not only that, but the other sources he quotes don't say either. Um, so the Ramad doesn't really say it either, although we'll look at the Ramad in three weeks, but the Ramad doesn't really say it either. Actually, I think if you, if you trace it through, you'll see that, that the majority of the tradition has, right, both Ashkenazi and Sparty, right, even though the Rift has it this way, the Rift actually has it both ways in different places, right, I didn't show you that, right, here the Rift has it with one way, in another place the Rift quotes the other way, it doesn't see the difference between them, probably. I think that if you recognize that there, there are the, the two first versions of the metaphors, you can look back and say, oh, touch is only one of two, op- right, or one of two options, you'll see the Shulchan Aruch does not quote the one that bans touch. Right, so that's what I, so that's wrap up for the first week. You've got, you're right, you have the Trefa who we're understanding is somebody who has a physical condition that will kill them with, a particular kind of physical condition that will kill them within 12 months, and they're a little bit dead. There's the ghost there's somebody who is dying imminently, and they're not at all dead. There's a zombie who is all the way dead already, just still has a soul in their body. And the question of what you're left, right, so those, those are all the Nafinas in terms of murder, but there's also halakha, which, right, which is generally said that even that it's felt, because killing a ghost is murder, you're not even allowed to touch somebody who's dying, and that I want to suggest uh, arose from an error, and that at least in certain circumstances where it would be very difficult to talk in that way, um, we should not talk in that way, and in fact, that that's not the um, that's not the bulk of the tradition. At the same time, recognizing that you know this is a public sphere in the shul, and Rav Moshe clearly held entirely the opposite, and to talk in it against Rav Moshe is something that takes uh, very little shoulders. Thank you much, for, very much for listening, and we'll see you in uh, eight days. Uh, yeah.